for me, I, I think a season of de- deconstruction can be critically important, you know, when, you know, uh, things, certain things need to be dismantled. Um, but at the same time, I felt like in deconstruction and other, you know, leading voices out there, like the one step that is often missed is the, okay, but what now? Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm Seth, your host. I'm excited that you're here. I'm excited for you to hear the upcoming interview. I had the the delight to, to sit down with Benjamin Corey, who has written a book, Unafraid, and, and you'll hear us reference it many times, about moving beyond a gospel or a Bible or a faith or a religion based entirely on fear, how that is not Jesus how it is nowhere close to Jesus, the the risk that we take when we do that, and the disservice that we do to our culture, to our faith, to our children, to ourselves, when we engage in a study of scripture that is entirely rooted on fear. I'm excited for you to hear it. And so let's do this. Benjamin Corey. Benjamin L. Corey, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. It is, it has been, it's been a, a long time coming, a hard, a hard thing to organize, and so I appreciate appreciate it finally coming all to, to fruition. Yeah, no, absolutely, Seth. I appreciate uh, having me on the show, and um, after all the uh, back and forth with uh, several different people, I'm glad that it finally worked out for me to be here with you. Yeah, me as well. Um, so. I wanted to discuss in brief just just your your latest book, uh, a bit about you, and then wherever that leads, and I feel like that could go off into to many many different places. And so, for those that are unfamiliar with you, uh, which who knows how many people or what people's streams are that on how they got here. So can you just briefly give a bit of your background? Uh, I specifically like that you were in the military. There's just a lot about you that I think most people would hear. Oh, a, a progressive quote unquote Christian. Of course, he sure. was raised differently, or whatever. Um, and so, I think that's interesting. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, I grew up um, the you know the uh, the oldest of four kids on a dairy farm uh, in you know rural Maine, where my dad is uh, still an organic dairy farmer, milks the cows twice a day, uh, and so grew up in just real small town um, farming community. Uh, you know, most folks were kind of conservative evangelical and um, was kind of raised in in that conservative um, evangelical arena. Um, in high school, I got pulled more into what I would call fundamentalism um, as I, you know, was interested in travel and interested in mission trips. And so, uh, you know, when I was a sophomore in high school, signed up for, you know, my first mission trip that, that summer of my sophomore year. Um, and the organization turned out to be Definitely much more hardcore type, you know, young earth creationism, you know, no mixed bathing type of boys in the back, girls in the front type stuff. Um, and but um, so I ended up doing uh, two summers of mission trips um, with them um, in high school, um, both, you know, uh, in Russia and in Eastern Europe. So that kind of got me pulled more into the fundamentalist direction uh, where 
I think I was uh, definitely kind of, I was kind of always a misfit of sorts and I was kind of looking for some sort of belonging. And, you know, the odd thing is I never really belonged in fundamentalism. I was even the misfit there, but there was at least, there was at least a, a structure to it that, you know, kind of made me feel safe, I think. You know, even though I was raised conservative evangelical, my folks, you know, divorced when I was eight and life, you know, became um, really unpredictable for most of my childhood uh, from that point on, just uh, back and forth. I think at one point I had, um, you know, in fifth grade changed schools, you know, three times and, you know, spent part of the year semi-homeless, just crashed um, for a half year at my grandmother's house. And there's four of us kids that would all sleep on the pull-out hideaway bed in the living room. And, you know, we would take turns, three in the bed, one on the floor kind of a thing. And um, so life was like really unpredictable and unstable. And I think when I got pulled into fundamentalism, it was meaning more of a, a deeper primal need for stability and security, even if it was based on things that were, were ultimately toxic. And so from there, I ended up, um, after getting out of high school, uh, went on uh, with that same fundamentalist organization to their Bible school in upstate New York, um, where I really wasn't a good fit. Even though I tried, I just could not toe the line. It was as if I, I believed everything that they believed. Um, I, you know, kind of sort of went along with the program, but I think um, the structure just became uh, too much for me and there was no grace. And, uh, you know, by the end of the first semester, I just started to realize that something didn't sit right in my spirit. Something didn't feel good or right about this. So over uh, Christmas break, I uh, dropped out of Bible school and uh, enlisted in the military and ended up spending uh, the next 10 years of my life in the military. I did uh, seven consecutive uh, years overseas. Um, you know, uh, seen, you know, been in hostile fire zones from, you know, the Balkans to Kosovo. I went through 9-11 uh, in uh, Korea, um, you know, with full chem gear and gas masks and wondering if Kim Jong-il was going to, you know, do something while we were distracted, you know, with 9-11. So did an entire decade there, you know, became professional military education instructor, teaching, you know, the, the younger troops how to lead. Um, and then uh, ended up taking uh, an early retirement after 10 years. And from there, I moved back to Maine and uh, decided to use my GI Bill and went to a conservative uh, evangelical seminary, went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I did two masters there, a master's in theology, a master's in, in missiology. And then I went on to a Fuller Theological Seminary and got my doctorate. Nice. Sorry, so, that was a long answer. No, <laughs> no, that's fine. That's... I think it's important to understand where people come from, because uh, mm -hmm. where you come from matters, and whether or not you stay where you come from and you keep that mindset or you move past it, it matters where you came from, because there sure, are pieces yeah. that you can always, there are pieces that you keep and pieces that are important, and where you come from is part of what made you you today. So mm -hmm. I am curious, so you said when you came back, you used your GI Bill and went to a conservative um, seminary. So what would be the difference between that seminary versus the one that you didn't fit in with? Oh my goodness. Uh, so let's see. So when I went to Word of Life, um, it was much more of here are the uh, questions you're allowed to ask. Mm -hmm. Here are the answers. Memorize them. That sounds similar to my school. I went, I went to Liberty. So very, 
Yeah. Okay. So sure. You know, Liberty and Word of Life were kind of partners, like because uh, Word of Life wasn't accredited, and Liberty was one of the few places where um, where you could go after a year at Word of Life and actually have your credits count. Uh, it was like you know, but they. But the funny thing is, was I remember being at Word of Life. They actually considered Liberty to be liberal, and they were you know, even though they had this partnership, there were these warnings about you know. Uh, they would say you know we had the president of Word of Life back at the time was a guy named Jack Wirtz, and they would say yeah well. Well, at Word of Life, we have Jack Wurtzen, but at Liberty University, they have Jack Daniels. So you need to be careful. <laughs> I can't imagine anyone calling Liberty liberal. Well, maybe Oral Roberts or yeah. Pensacola, maybe. But So, yeah, this is one of those things. But uh, so – so Gordon Conwell, uh, I have uh, nothing but the highest esteem for Gordon Conwell. Um, Gordon Conwell, a very conservative evangelical seminary, very, very well-respected academic institution. Um, the difference was certainly they were conservative evangelical, but it was there was certainly a, a, a wide diversity of th- – maybe not a wide diversity. There was more diversity of thought. But there was also truly the um, the freedom to ask your own questions and come to your own conclusions. Um, I mean, I, I wrote papers, you know, before disagreeing with the professor and still got an A on, you know, and mm. um, so and, and it didn't it didn't impact the relationship at all as long as you were doing like good academic work and using your mind. There was, uh, you know, it was definitely like more of Calvinist leaning um, as far as the staff, um, but. You know, obviously, I didn't turn out to be a Calvinist, um, uh, but you know, certainly my years there were were massively broadening, specifically in that um, they had um, many, many charismatics and they had many mainliners. And so, for me, growing up, we were taught that charismatics were possessed by the by demons, and that that's how they spoke in gibberish. You know, um, and so, uh, you know, to be sitting alongside charismatics and to to over time get to know them and be like, oh, these guys like sincerely love Jesus. Like, I, you know, I, whether I agree with this or that, like you can't deny like, man, these guys are totally following Jesus. And, you know, the same thing with the, the Episcopalians and the Methodists who, you know, I, growing up, we were taught that those mainline churches like Methodist, Episcopal, you know, congregational, that they were, quote unquote, social clubs mm. um, and that they were nothing more than social clubs. And so basically, you know, as I went through my, you know, f- you know, my three and a half years at Gordon Conwell doing those two masters, um, it just really kind of shook the the stereotypes and, and what I was taught first about other people, but then about theology. And for me, it was realizing that even though they were conservative evangelical, they actually were they actually you know undid a lot of fundamentalist theology, which they thought was extreme, you know, such as dispensationalism and end times. And so for me, that I think having the end times you know theology be unpended for me was really like the gateway that led to everything else because that's the one that started asking me like. Oh, if I was wrong about this, what about everything else? Yeah, yeah. And so I think that segues beautifully into your most recent book. And and, and for those mm-hmm. that are listening, you've written more than one book. I think the one before this was called Undiluted, and I can't remember the mm-hmm. subtitle. Uh, predominantly about Jesus and big fan of the radical message of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, big fan of talking about Jesus. Um, I like to always end on Jesus if at all possible. But yeah, your book, too. your book, Unafraid. And and I referenced it before we started co- recording. Made me laugh out loud. There's a, a portion in there 
that you say, I forget how many numbers, but the 872nd time that you uh-huh. prayed to ask Jesus into your heart, yeah. you're hopeful that that was it. And and that made me think of uh, the spiritual emphasis weeks that we'd have at Liberty where they'd bring in a massive speaker and we're going to keep doing this altar call until half of Vine Center is empty. We've got to, everybody needs to be on the floor. So, oh my gosh, yeah. So your book, what mm-hmm. what is kind of the, the beginning of that? What made you, from coming from talking about Jesus, what made you want to write your most recent work? What What is, what is know, the goal? It was an interesting process in that, you know, when, when, you know, when the idea for my second book was, you know, bought and put under contract, it was actually a totally different book. You know, it was actually, um, you know, it was actually bought as a book called American Heresy and was going to be um, just kind of this general, um, you know, book critiquing, you know, things like Christian nationalism and stuff like that. Um, and as I sat down to write it, I, it, the, the process was really, really difficult for me in that I was, I, I don't know if I consciously realized it at the time, but subconsciously, like uh, I had so many things swirling underneath the surface in my life. I was questioning um, so much. Um, I was frozen with what to do with my future. So much of my life felt like it was falling apart. And so, you know, I would spend entire days in front of the computer and, um, you know, realize that I had, you know, written like uh, three sentences and deleted two and a half of them. Um, And so I, um, you know, I definitely started to panic at one point because um, when you get a book contracted, it's kind of like borrowing money from the mafia. They give you money up front to write it. And then when the due date comes, it's like if you don't produce, somebody's going to show up into your house looking for that. Um, (laughs) They're breaking uh, your legs. They're taking your laptop. Yeah. Um, so I ended up just spiritually crashing as I sat there and didn't know how to, to write the book. And um, in in the end, I was in counseling and realized that um, everything that I was struggling with in life kept going back to fear. And um, so one day um, my counselor asked me, he's like, who is it then? Who is it? He's like, you're dancing for somebody. You're trying to appease somebody. You're trying to impress somebody. He said, are you, are you trying to impress your mom, your dad? Who is it? And I was like, oh my gosh, it's God. I, I'm like, I am so afraid of God that I am frozen in my life and don't know which way to turn. I'm scared to make any decision. I'm scared to plant my flag on this theology firmly or that one because I don't want to be on the wrong side of God. Uh, and so I realized that my life was in part like, sort of crumbling because my faith was crumbling. And that was deeply rooted in the idea that I just had this fear of God. And so one day I just sat down and started writing about um, no longer wanting to be afraid of God. And all of a sudden, like this entire new book was born um, about moving beyond fear-based faith. And that was kind of the process, how this book was truly born from some of the deepest and most painful places inside of me, which is certainly why in this book I are more vulnerable and authentic than I've ever been in any other area of my writing. There's a part in the book that you talk about sitting in a chair, basically, and I'm assuming it's not long after that, and basically having a conversation from both points of view. That yeah. was that was moving. I read that. I actually read that part twice. I, I let it sit for a while and came back to it. It mm. was. You don't hear men specifically talk about emotions, mm-hmm. um, and it's. I don't know. I don't yeah, know what no, the word I, is. I was really well. I I was really deliberate in that. Um, I wanted to frame this book. You know, bookend it 
both as beginning in my counselor's office, you know, and ending in my counselor's office in that um, throughout the process, I was obviously, you know, severely depressed. I was grieving different things in my life. Um, and I think, you know, seeking help and working with a, a counselor um, is really a healthy choice um, that, that so many of us need to do. And certainly from the Christian environment I grew up in, it, it was pretty frowned upon. Um, you know, my, my grandfather died by suicide, you know, from untreated depression depression and um you know just came from this culture where you you didn't really seek help because it was so stigmatized and so i wanted to be really deliberate about talking about the role of counseling in my process and that's why i began and ended the book that way and and yeah um that story about sitting in the the chair and doing kind of that role play uh when my counselor you know said it was we needed to do that i mean i thought it was so hokey i don't do things like that it just it's so cheesy and i was just doing it to go through the motions and it turned out to be one of the most profoundly like moving spiritual experiences I've ever had. And uh, yeah, I almost think that those are like my favorite two pages in the book. Yeah, I would, uh, I would agree. They were definitely the most, you, you tell a lot of stories, but they're not, they're very topical. So that the people that mm -hmm. know you best will know the full story behind that story. But that, right. that seemed to be one of the stories that was raw. So how, sure was. how do you move? So you've, you talk about moving past a, 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 a faith in God based in fear. And so when, when you've broken everything apart, you've escaped from a gospel of fear, there's just pieces laying on the ground and you don't know where, and, and you used the word earlier, which side to plant your flag on. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand on? How do you begin or how does someone listening to this begin to know, okay, this is the piece that I can pick back up and chew on and work with and begin mm -hmm. to have some foundation as opposed to just, I'm never coming back to this pool. This yeah. water is tainted. It's mm -hmm. going to kill me. Look at the news. It's poison. I don't want it. Well, so the, the entire, one of the, the foundational concepts in Unafraid um, is, is almost like this subtle critique of um, deconstruction and um, and how you know back in the day you know you know the emergent movement would deconstruct theology and how maybe sometimes progressive Christianity you know deconstructs theology. Um, for me, I, I think a season of de deconstruction can be critically important. You know when you know uh, things certain things need to be dismantled. Um, but at the same time, I felt like in deconstruction and other you know leading voices out there, like the one step that is often missed is the okay, but what now? Um, and so for me, I realized that my deconstruction process was starting to leave me empty-handed, um, and I. I panicked both because of myself feeling empty handed, but also realizing, you know, that, you know, there are thousands and thousands of people that could potentially be the same way because they followed me. Um, and I didn't want to leave them empty handed. And so, um, you know, so I was just, you know, um, I actually, you know, back when I did podcasting, had Rob Bell on my show and was talking to Rob and, um, you know, I asked him, I said, um, Hey, you know, what would you say to somebody who just doesn't know what they believe in anymore? And he would say, I, I would tell him that's not true. Not true that you don't know what you believe anymore. What is true is that right now you're keenly aware of some things you no longer believe, but that's not the same thing. And so that kind of became, like I call it in the book, like a, a decoder ring moment in that I was like, oh, 
sometimes naming what you don't believe, that part that you just described, like, what do I do with this, actually leads you to what you do believe, because you just have to ask the next question. Um, and so in the book, it's really about, okay, so I don't believe in, in this like angry God anymore that I have to be afraid of. So what do I believe? Okay, so I don't believe in this anymore. So what do I believe? Um, and it was really founded upon the importance of asking that second question so that you can move beyond. I think um, certainly in, I think maybe in a lot of the in the book, I critique, you know, my my own kind of, you know, folks, um, you know, in progressive Christian circles and how we just kind of get stuck and maybe we don't move beyond. And so I wanted to ask that next question, like, OK, how do we move beyond? OK, great. This isn't true. Um, I don't believe this anymore. But what now? And I really do think that when you name out loud those things you don't believe in anymore, that really it's just a matter of asking that next question. And you can often almost instinctively answer it for yourself. If I don't believe the future is full of doom and gloom, what do I believe? It's open to possibilities. Even when the trouble and the hard times come Oh, oh, I know I've conquered all today through your love Nothing can separate us Nothing can separate us. I want to name a few of those things and get your thoughts on those. And, and some of yeah. this is from what I see you write on your blog, um, which I highly recommend people go and read. Front and center in my mind, just specifically because of I'm here in central Virginia, about an hour north of Lynchburg. And uh, Shane Claiborne's about to have a thing down there in April. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Dr. F- Jerry Jr. is not happy about that. And he wrote a piece yeah. today basically saying, I I, yeah, yeah. And, and so I find, I don't know why, but, and I used to be there again, I went to Liberty and I was all in it. Christian tribalism seems mm. to be, seems to be the church as opposed to the church. And so I guess my question is mm-hmm. why do we as a country or, or as, a, as a planet use Christianity is a litmus test for anything, for church, for revival, for politics, for universities. Why has that become the status quo, in your opinion? Well, can you ask me that a slightly different way? Yeah, I guess my question is, anyone that wants to become a leader or run for politics or lead a church, your politics matter, but only as long as you fit into this small bucket of Christianity that is, well, I don't really need to define it because you can just turn on Fox Mm -hmm. news and and see it. And and I would call that Christian tribalism as opposed Mm -hmm. to a religion. Oh, for sure. Uh, And so why have, how have we gotten there? Yeah, it's so I mean, at the starter, uh, certainly I think um, tribalism is is an, an innate human instinct. We, we certainly, um, you know, just as human beings seem to consolidate around commonalities in order to, you know, be with like people in order to protect from enemies and um, <coughs> excuse me. So <clears throat> we, we do kind of gravitate towards um, tribalism. And I think like the gospel is actually in, you know, a calling, you know, and an antidote to move beyond that kind of tribalism. Um, but certainly in America, um, you know, it's honestly, it's more than tribalism. What it is, is it is, um, this desire for political power 
And um, there is definitely a, a prominent group of people who want nothing more than, than control and political power. And it's becoming more and more apparent that they will do anything to get it, including like selling out their own values. Um, and so I don't even know if in their case it's an issue of tribalism. I believe it is a pure lust for political power. Um, and they will actually reframe things in whatever way they need to um, in order to, to achieve that power. And I mean, the great case in point is just Donald Trump. The religious right I grew up in, there was no way we would have ever supported somebody as grossly as immoral as he is. Um, But today, that lust for power is just so overwhelming um, that they will literally look aside and explain away and disregard everything that he does that is so blatantly immoral. Um, And so, like I said, it's not even so much about tribalism as it is. They just want power and clearly will do anything to get it. Yeah, which is the inverse of what Jesus stood Mm -hmm. for. He he literally gave gave every power away, was offered all the power and said, I don't, you Mm -hmm. know, you're not even asking the right question. This isn't even the right power. You're you're offering the wrong power. Yeah, his temptation in the wilderness, Satan offered him all the political power. That was his first test before ministry is, is rejecting that. Other things that I think fall away when you move past a fear-based version of God. Uh, And you you say it in your book, and I'm going to paraphrase it. You you say something about the leaders in a Calvinist movement, or I would say the church proper, uh, from what I notice in church, make Mm -hmm. the case that we cannot even experience God's love until we are sufficiently appropriately (laughs) afraid of what he would do to us if we don't love him back in the right way. And, And I have many issues with Calvinism, uh, or I've become to have many issues with Calvinism, but I get the most pushback on these shows, specifically mm-hmm. from Calvinists. Uh, you know, oh, and so I guess what would you say to someone, not that is currently a Calvinist and listening, because I can't think there would be many, but from someone that is teetering on, do I believe in some of the points? Maybe I just want to let it all go. What would you, what would you say to someone moving past that? What can they cling to when they when they let go of that fear uh, mm-hmm. and embrace? And embrace, I guess, grace. You alluded to earlier the 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 grace. There was no grace at Word of Life. It was all fear. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, gosh, as far as Calvinism, I gosh, I, I, you know, I think maybe I wrote in the book that you know, um, you know, I was a Calvinist for you know, I was Calvinist for you know for a few days, and it was you know the longest you know six months of my life, and um, it's just uh, for me, I don't have much connection with it at all, um, and certainly. Um, some of the folks who have gone after me over the years have pr- most predominantly been Calvinists. I mean, just, um, yeah, almost uh, mercilessly, uh, they can't stand me. Um, you know, but anyways, you know, but I, this idea that we have to be sufficiently afraid of God to me is just nonsense in that when the Bible describes the opposite of love, it doesn't describe hate, it describes fear. And, you know, it says that there, there's, there can be no fear in love and that perfect love will cast out all fear. And so if the Bible is saying that perfect love makes fear go away, like how can you say that we can't experience love until we're sufficiently afraid? It just it's ridiculously, grossly unbiblical right on the surface. Furthermore, it doesn't make any practical sense. For example, you know, I talk about ISIS terrorists and, and setting people on fire. And how could you ever like 
be in a relationship with somebody who was willing to do that? You know, how do you have a, you know, or think about abusive relationships. You know, how do you really have a deeply connected and authentic relationship with somebody who you're afraid in the back of your mind that if you step on the wrong thing, they are going to unleash on you and harm you, whether physically, emotionally, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, you can have a, you know, a, a really dysfunctional relationship, uh, you know, with somebody. You can have a relationship based on a appeasement or codependency, but I don't know how you have a relationship that is founded upon fear that is anything like what I would imagine God longs to have with us. Yeah, no, I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. There was a, a portion in your in your book, and it's right in, in the mid-center, that I had mm-hmm. never learned, never heard of. I had seen Darby's translation of the Bible, but I had no idea why that name was a name that mattered. And you talk a bit of the history of Darby and kind of how his version, well, before his version, the church did what the church should do. If people were hungry, they fed them. Mm-hmm. Salvation Army, uh, they set up libraries. They would do what needed to be done. And so I feel like there has to be a pile of people that are not familiar with a bit of Darby and how that impacts mm-hmm. dispensationalism and mm-hmm. how that makes us look at what we do with our military. Uh, yeah. And so can you speak a bit about that history and kind of how it relates to today? Yeah, no, I think it is absolutely fascinating um, in that so many Christians today obviously grow up being taught some version of like end times theology. You know, there's going to be a rapture. And even if you don't believe in a rapture, you know, oftentimes most people believe in a coming tribulation and that just everything is getting worse and worse. Um, and that just seems to be in, in modern evangelicalism, like so prominent, even if, if there's different degrees of nuance that people believe. Um, and uh, certainly that's what I was raised with. And I believe that that generates an incredibly pessimistic view of the future. Um, And um, I had no idea that Christians ever believed anything different because growing up, I wasn't even taught that there was an alternative. I think um, I was, I was in my thirties at seminary and, and heard a professor, you know, mocking the idea of a rapture. And I, I sat there and I was utterly bewildered because I didn't know what he was talking about, um, that there was another view. Um, but certainly if, man, if you go back, if you go back to the 1800s, uh, man, evangelicalism in America did some amazing things. I mean, certainly Christians back then did some horrible, abhorrent things, but there were like some evangelicals that were just like so optimistic about the future. They didn't believe that like the world was ending. They believed that, um, you know, that the kingdom was, was both now and not yet. And that we need to make the world into the kind of place, you know, ready for Jesus to return to and to reign. And they were, you know, addressing, you know, social problems and social ills with this, you know, this optimism, even like those big 10 old fashioned revivals, there was a, 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 a famous revivalist called, uh, his name was uh, Charles Grandison Finney, who was a really famous revivalist. Well, he preached two things. He, he preached the need for personal conversion, which is what you'd expect at a revival. But then he also preached that you need to become socially useful. Um, and so there was this concept of being socially useful tied to what it meant to be an evangelical Christian. Um, and they just did some amazing things. And so, but then things started to change. There was um, this minister from England, John Nelson Darby, and um, he was uh, not trained in the Bible. He was not theologically trained. He just had some 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 pretty wacky ideas, uh, and he like either you know 
he either you know popularized or you know invented the idea of a rapture sometimes there's there's some debate where it truly originated but clearly he is the one who popularized it at at the least um and um you know this was in you know the the you know mid to latter 1800s um you know when this happened and so um it ended up slowly kind of taking root and what darby taught was he rebuked christians for having an optimistic outlook on the future and he said that we can only expect things to get worse and worse until God has no other choice but to judge the world. And so at first it didn't really take hold, um, but then as time went on, it really began to take root. And then, of course, we ended up getting the Schofield Study Bible, which many people had growing up. And in the Schofield Study Bible, it had Darby's notes in the margins, which a lot of just uh, lay people confused with, like, the true scripture itself mm-hmm. began to take root. And then more and more Bible schools propped up. There were all all these, like, Bible schools in around that time that were propping up. Most of them were all founded on the concept of teaching, you know, dispensationalism. Um, and so it took more – it started gain traction and then by the time we see world war one hit and you know and then certainly world war two people started saying hey maybe he's right the world look i mean everything's getting worse everything's getting worse and then um and then from there people realized that you can make a shit ton of money off of writing about the end of the world and so they just ran with it Forever sinking in the depths of the past And how I felt inside I found a love that never fails Took the blame so I go So, so taking that to its end result, and I think you can speak to this from a side that many can't. So you've lived in all of those camps. You've been in the military. You've been fundamental, a uh, fundamental, you've been fundamentalist. Um, so what then as a, I am currently struggling with how do I sit with, you know, gun rights? How do I sit with how we use our military and pacifism, but also I'm going to, I feel like I'm going to punch you in the mouth if you punch me first. And so how... How do you stand on that? What should be the purpose of a nation to use a military, and what should be the church's either support or retribute or or whatever that, with that? Well, the church's job is to follow Jesus and to make Jesus known among the nations and to teach everyone, you know, to, to go to all the nations and um, to baptize them and to teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. And Jesus clearly commanded that um, we love our enemies, that we do not repay, you know, evil for evil. Um, you know, that, you know, in fact, you know, both in Matthew and in Luke, Jesus says, you know, to to not repay that way, but we're to love our enemies. And Luke is, you know, and, you know, Matthew says, you know, for then you will be acting like children of your father in heaven. And and Luke adds the caveat saying for, you know, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, you know. And so it's as if uh, when we love our enemies and when we do not repay evil with evil, um, that we, um, we are acting like God himself. And so um, do nations have a right to have a military? Clearly, you know, a nation can do whatever a nation wants. But the role of a church is to teach people. People, Jesus, uh, and Jesus did not go around dropping bombs. Jesus taught against all of that, um, and so 
Um, I believe the church's number one role is to keep pointing people to Jesus, keep pointing people to Jesus and, and what Jesus taught. So I, I, even though I acknowledge that, that you know a secular state has the right to do what a secular state does, um, I certainly have no idea how somebody can simultaneously follow Jesus, like legitimately follow Jesus and follow his teachings and teach other people to follow his teachings, while also simultaneously supporting and advocating uh, and propping up uh, things that Jesus was very specifically against. I just, I honestly don't know how that works. I don't know how you do that. Yeah. Well, I don't either. I was, yeah, <laughs> I've, I've been asked that question so many times and I never had a satisfying answer. And I find when I tell people, well, I would like to view the world through the lens of if my neighbor's hungry, I'll feed them. And in this case, the neighbor can be Mexico or Belize or it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. And they're like, well, they're just going to come take your things. I was like, well, that's, you, what are you valuing? Am I valuing? Jesus, Jesus said, when somebody <laughs> takes your hat, give them your coat too. I'm, so when I'm somebody said, so, so, so they're saying, well, they're just going to take, Jesus said, okay, well, they take your hat and give me a coat too. Okay. That's, I mean, for me, people ask me these questions. My friend Brian Zahn one time before I had, was going on before a debate and he just, he, he gave me the advice. He said, just let Jesus do all the heavy lifting. And I think it's the best advice I've ever gotten. You get in these conversations, let Jesus do the heavy lifting. Um, and it's amazing how people will not want to have a discussion with you. If you, you know, how a Christian will not want to have a discussion with you. If you keep pointing them to Jesus, but what did Jesus say? Well, what did Jesus say? Yeah. Um, it's, um, it, it should be like the easiest thing for a Christian to accept and yet it will be the most maddening for many people so we're running out of time and so i, I have two mm-hmm. i want to get a bit to and and you don't really talk a lot about this in your book but it's it's inferred and and you can extrapolate from it so what do we do with you know in the news lately we've had you know in tennessee uh there was a church that basically was told if you bring this senior minister that's a woman you can't be a part of this southern baptist convention or cooperative baptist fellowship or whichever version of baptist it was uh, and then you've got, uh, you know, John Piper taking a jab at, at women everywhere, which I take a umbrage at because I have two small women that if they want to be mm-hmm. ministers, right? Women were 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 as effective as ministers and, as men mm-hmm. in in the scriptures. So, what would you say to someone that that lives in that misogynist, dualistic? Not, I don't even remember what the word is. Compl- complementarianism. I don't know if that's what the word is. Uh, how do you? Sure. And, and you've written to it recently, and so I'd love to hear some of your but thoughts that, on that. Well, you know, what would I say to such a person? Uh, I mean, you know, I think I was in an interview a couple of days ago, and they said, "What would you say to a person who?" And I'm like, "Well, <laughs> every person is different, and every communication style, you know, um, needs to be adjusted for the individual." If our desire is to truly persuade and convert, I, I, I never know how to um, answer directly the question, what would you say to a person? Because to me, every person is different. And you know, if, if my goal is to change a heart, I want to find the most effective way to communicate with a person as I can. Um, but certainly, as far as women in ministry, I mean, oh my gosh, I, you know, I just did a post the other day with 10 points I, in that um, there are f- strong female leadership throughout the Old Testament and that, you know, 
obviously, you know, the Old Testament, Ian, it was certain, written from a very patriarchal and misogynistic society. Um, and, um, you know, but we still see the emergence of strong female leaders. We see, um, you know, even in the writings of Paul mentioning, you know, st- you know female church leaders. Um, and so even Paul, if, you know, you interpret him the way that like the Calvinists want to, um, isn't even consistent. Because one time, you know, in, he says women stay silent in the church. And the other a few chapters later, he's talking about women standing up in front of the church prophesying. Um, and so, um, you know, I think, you know, the biggest thing that I would, um, you know, want the, the biggest point I would want to convey to such a person is, um, the, the contextual nature of so much of scripture. Uh, that would be the point I try to get across in that, you know, Paul is writing letters to specific churches addressing specific problems. There are occasions where we actually know the problem he's trying to address, such as um, such as somebody sleeping with his stepmother. Um, and so he's giving advice to their church, uh, you know, on that. But in other cases, Paul is like, you know, writing these churches, and we don't always know exactly what he's trying to speak into. Um, so to truly honor scripture, we would need to make sure, like, we are applying everything on a one-for-one equivalent. And we just don't have the ability to do that, um, not under understanding all that Paul contextually was speaking into. Um, but certainly my favorite one that I like to do with um, with people in the complimentary camp, especially when they're literalists, is I like to say, oh yeah, well when you go to church do you greet your brothers with a holy kiss? And they're always like, <laughs> no! They're like, okay then, you already believe that some of what Paul commanded was, you know, historically contextual to a time and place and we don't follow it today. You know, so don't give me this nonsense about, oh, when Paul says this is about women, it's for all time, but when he tells the guys to kiss each other at church, all of a sudden, like that's past. That was, that like, was for oh, then. Do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so for the little for for the women listening, and for my daughters in twenty years, if they feel like listening, the message would be: you were loved, and you were entirely empowered to witness oh. and to minister the the gospel, and you were in no way put in a in a subservient place. Yep. I mean, God chose women to be the first two people to preach the gospel that Christ has risen. They preached it to men. So if it's good enough for God, it is good enough for us. You can preach any, preach it, preach it, preach it. Absolutely. So I want to end on, on this. So how do we make sure that we raise a generation, and, and let me back up a bit. I was talking with a fr- uh, an extended family member recently, and, and we both find it odd that the generation of Dr. Falwell can those children can raise my generation, which seem to be entirely more socially minded and, and arguably more less dualistic than at least my, my small circles are. So how does our generation now raise our children in such a way that, that Jesus isn't based on fear uh, while still having a proper exegesis of Scripture? Because I, f- I find it hard when my son asks a question. Like he asked a question the other day at breakfast, just, Dad, how do I know that God is Jesus and Jesus is God? <laughs> and, it's, and it's hard when I have to talk about, you know, substitutionary atonement or penal mm-hmm. substitution or, or other. It, it's, it's just hard. So how, how do we train our children in such a way that, that God is not rooted in fear? Well, um, you know, I, I think that, that can be a complex question. I know um, for me, um, I just, you know, I teach my daughter Jesus and I focus on Jesus and and how he loved people and how he uh, cared for people and how he brought people in. Um, and, you know, I 
I, you know, I will frequently say, I think I probably heard Greg Boyd say it first, but I have certainly picked up a habit for saying it myself, um, that, you know, the only way to describe what God is like is to describe what Jesus is like. Like, that's the only way. I mean, Jesus is our doctrine of God. If you want to know what God's like, you got to look to Jesus. Um, and so I basically, I teach my, my, my daughter that it is all centered on Jesus. Jesus is where we begin. Jesus is the word of God. G- Hebrews calls Jesus the wisdom of God. Um, he is, the, you know, the full expression of God's essence. And so it all, I just keep pointing them to Jesus and, you know, I, you know, I I think, you know, maybe back in the day, a lot of people heard the analogy. It was often used about exposing a false gospel. They would say, um, they would say, well, you know how they tell counterfeit money? You know, they don't study the counterfeits. They study the real thing. And so you notice a counterfeit when you see it. Um, and so I, I do apply that concept. No, no, no. We, we go to Jesus. We go to Jesus. Everything that doesn't look like Jesus is not God. You know, everything that doesn't sound like Jesus, no, 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 that's not of God. And so um, for me, I don't know what else to do other than to really deeply root your entire foundation in Jesus and let Jesus be that lens. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we are, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. So mm-hmm. where where can people interact with you? I, I know you're active on social media uh, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and and plug the book as well. And, 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 and for those listening, all of those links will be in the notes as you just scroll right past the play button. Um, and so I will link everything there. But where would you point people to engage with you, to interact with others yeah. that are struggling sure. with these issues? Well, definitely. Uh, well, folks can find me on Twitter at Benjamin L. Corey. Uh, and um, also on Facebook, you can find me um, at Benjamin L. Corey. And you'll see the blue check mark there to know that that's my uh, public page. And um, I am working on definitely interacting um, and engaging with readers more. It's been a long year for me, and I've been uh, a bit isolated, um, you know, in many, many ways. Um, so they can join uh, this discussion there on Facebook. And then, of course, they can um, always uh, go right to my blog on Patheos or directly uh, through formerlyfundy.com. And so uh, all of those places uh, you will find me. Benjamin Corey is uh, the easiest way to track me down. Great, great. Well, Benjamin, I hope you have a great rest of your morning. Uh, and, you, and a great, I hope the year's great for you. Um, I, I appreciate it. Side question, is there another book coming? Are you oh, back there- in bed with the mafia? I am not back in the bed with the mafia yet, but I just took the sheets out of the dryer and uh, I am moving in that direction. Cool. So. <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> People, people listen. I hope that you got as much out of that as I did. It was so fun talking with Ben. It's it's odd to find someone that has worn all of the hats, has been fundamentalist, has been Calvinist, has been in the military, is a father, has been divorced. It's just it's it's in fresh it's refreshing to hear from someone that that knows genuinely where you're coming from. And so where do we sit with that? I know personally, and and it's been referenced in other episodes, I find that my job now is to love as Jesus does, 
teach my children to do the same. And if I'm honest, I'm slightly fearful that I'll fail at that. And and so I'll pray for you, you pray for me. It is hard to be that transparent and to not lose our temper either online, in our family, at our job. But I think that it's doable. And I think we can do it. To the... to. To those that have supported us, uh, to those that have supported the show on Patreon, thank you so much. So, so much. You have no idea what an honor that is to earn your support in that way. This show is entirely supported by you, 127%. I've enjoyed the conversation and the interaction with many of you on Twitter, and I would encourage you to, to reach out on Facebook, on social media everywhere, the conversation is fantastic. I enjoy it, and I know it helps connect many of you that are of a like mind, that are dealing with these same conversations. And so thank you for that. To the handful of you sitting on your couch or in your car, consider becoming a patron. As little as a buck a month. But do what you feel called to do, and I will be grateful either way. Be blessed, and we'll talk to you next time. The music that you heard today was provided from the band Versus, based out of Newcastle, Australia. You can find their music on Spotify, iTunes, or at their website, versusmusic.com. You can also find all of the music featured from any episode on Spotify playlist, Can I Say This at Church?